Welcome, brothers and sisters, to our second service this afternoon. Pray that uh, if a warm welcome to any guests or visitors, those that are online with us as well. We hope that our worship together may be upbuilding to one another and maybe to the glory of our Lord. Our call to worship comes to us from Romans 11, verse 33 to 36. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For those who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsel or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things and to him be glory forever. Amen. Congregation, where does our help come from? Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In response, let us sing of hymn 5, verse 1. for a blessing over our worship service. Heavenly Father, eternal, merciful God, we come before you again this afternoon thanking you that you have brought us back together as your congregation. Thank you that we could have opportunity to enjoy fellowship with each other this past hour. Bless our conversations and interactions with one another that we might uphold and encourage sharing in each other's joys and concerns of life. Now we ask you, Lord, to bless the reading of your word. Open our hearts and ears to hear what you are saying to us. Grant us your Holy Spirit that he may work in us the understanding of your Trinity, that through your blessing we may find and bring fruits of holiness and righteousness acceptable to you through Jesus Christ. Grant a peaceful time in our nursery and bless the teaching in the little lambs as well. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Scripture reading comes to us from John 3, verse 1 through 21.
Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that what I say to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things, you do not believe how you can believe. If I tell you heavenly things, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the man the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed. In the name of the only Son of God, and this is the judgment of light, has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So far our reading. In response, let us sing from hymn 3, verse 1, 2, and 3. <coughs>
God of heaven and earth is triune. And we will see this in Lord's Day 8 as our text. And how are these articles divided? Into three parts. First is about God, the Father, our creation. The second about God, the Son, and our redemption. And the third about God, the Holy Spirit, and our sanctification. Since there is only one God, why do we speak of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because God has so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one true eternal God. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus, we said a few weeks ago with Lord's Day 7 that only those saved are saved who believe faith is absolutely necessary for salvation. So we took a moment then to describe what faith was. Faith, we said, was accepting that God exists and then taking this God seriously. That's why you can't separate faith from obedience. But saying all of that raises the next question. If faith involves accepting that God exists, who is this God? The question is important, for there are all kinds of perceptions out there about who God is. Ask the average Canadian whether he believes there is a God, and you'll find the vast majority answers the question with yes. But now ask the, same, or the next question, what do you mean by God? And you'll get all kinds of answers. That's why it is important that the church confesses straight away who the God is and whom one must believe to be saved. And that's Lord's Day 8. Here the Catechism describes the God in whom we must believe as triune, three in one. More precisely, here we who live in modern-day Canada confess the only true God to be triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I intend this afternoon first to try to lay before you something of what society understands under the term of God. Then I want to turn to scriptures to learn from there what the God of heaven and earth has to say about himself. That will in turn provide material of encouragement and instruction for us in this modern world. I summarize the sermon with this theme, the God of heaven and earth is triune. We'll see three points. First, the two modern concepts of God. Secondly, the three distinct persons are one God. And third, the one glorious identity of God. So our first point, the two modern concepts of God. It seems to me, congregation, that Canadians' media reflects primarily two concepts of God. The first is based on evolution and has slowly become the accepted way in which our culture looks at God. The second jumped into its own because of the developments in the Middle East. 
and is really the Muslim way of looking at God, a way that the media tends to confuse with the God of the Bible. We look first at the evolution concept of God. The second half of the last century has seen the people of the street adopt the evolution theory as the true explanation of where life comes from. You will know the theory, billions of years ago, an inexplicable Big Bang began the universe. In the course of millions of years, molecules somehow got together in such a form as to be called life. And this early life evolved and changed with the circumstances and the climate to from the different various life forms we see around us today, ourselves included. This teaching has no room for a God in heaven who either created the world in the beginning or upholds the world today. All there is to existence is what science can tabulate. But evolutionists have had to recognize that tribes and nations have a religion. And in their religion, they have deities. The pressing question is, if there is no God in heaven, who revealed himself to man? How come man has religions? How come man worships deities? The answer runs as follows. When primitive man first began to think, says the evolutionists, philosopher, he noticed that you stand outside in full view of this yellow thing in the sky. You get all warm on the side facing that yellow thing. So there must be something in this sun on unexplainable energy. Or early man noticed that the fields were brown after a cold winter. Then it warmed up and after some days the fields turned green. So there must be something in the warmth an unexplainable energy that makes things grow. Or, early man once witnessed a storm, saw an enormous flash of lightning, heard an awful lot of noise, and then noticed that yonder tree was split in half. Conclusion, there must be an energy, a force in the thunder, and time and <clears throat> Conclusion, there must be an energy, a force, in the thunder, and this time it's not a friendly force, but something to be scared of. So says the evolutionist philosopher. Primitive man got to be thinking that this energy out there was a living force. They don't have the science to learn that it's just the way of nature. Once the thought across that this energy was a living force, early man developed the concept of this force being satisfied with you or being angry with you. So there developed a sense of duty in primitive man. Man should do things to keep this force happy. Least the force send you a terrible thunderstorm to scare the daylights out of you, hence the nation of sacrifices and of good or bad behavioral standards. As time went on, this energy received a name. The Egyptians called him Ru. The Canaanites called him Baal. The people of Israel called him Yahweh. The natives of Northern America called him the Great Spirit, and so on. 
As to how to keep this force happy, well, different cultures develop different sacrifices and liturgies and feasts and dances, so speaks the evolutionist. From this time of thinking, brothers and sisters, a number of conclusions follow quite logically. In the first place, everyone serves the same God, whether they realize it or not. This God is not the almighty creator who revealed himself from heaven in Holy Scripture. This is a God, rather, the energy people have noticed in the world around them and give their different names. This God is not real in the sense that he actually exists because science can today show how the sun has energy, how the warmth makes the grass grow, etc. Instead, this God is real in the minds of the people and they have developed ways of worshiping their understanding of this energy, ways others should respect. That's the second conclusion. There's no right way or wrong way to serve this energy, this deity, this God. People who live in the desert do it differently than people who live in the bush. And that's okay, because they experience this God differently. People of original, aboriginal background do it differently than people of Europe background. And that's okay too, because the understanding of this energy, and so their way of worshiping this energy, is culturally determined. So there's a third conclusion now, that people from England and from Thailand and from India and from Lebanon and from Iran and from the Congo all live together in one society called Canadian. We should respect each other's traditions and therefore not criticize each other's theologies or ways of serving our God. Instead, we should celebrate what binds us together. We all worship the same energy and at the same time celebrate our differences. We all worship that one energy differently. So we should celebrate interfaith services. Ask now your average Canadian whether he believes in God. Most will say yes. They believe there is a God. But ask for details and you'll find this evolutionary concept forming the beliefs of so many of our fellow citizens. We need to live in this land and we need to know what's around us. There's another concept of God that needs our attention and that's the concept of Islam. Ever since the Muslim faith was calculated to center stage on that unforgettable September the 11th. The Muslim concept of God has also received more attention. The Muslim concept of God comes so very much closer to that of the Bible than the evolutionary concept. Because the Muslim concept takes God for real, that is, Islam insists that God is there in reality and not in just people's minds. In fact, Allah is the creator of the world and upholds the world day by day. That sounds very similar to the teaching of the Bible. And that's also why Allah and God tend to get mixed up in the people's thinking as if Allah is the God of the Bible. But he's not. The Quran, that's the Muslim Bible, presents Allah as exalted in the heavens, sovereign and majestic. 
The Quran also says that Allah is merciful, compassionate, vengeful, just. All attributes we also recognize from Scripture as true of the Lord. But in reality, Allah's mercy and compassion have no function. Allah is instead the sovereign deity who coldly insists on obedience from every person on earth. There is no gospel that people have to believe. They need only accept that Allah is God and Allah is one, and Muhammad is his prophet. And so obey Allah in every respect of life. It is by acknowledging Allah through your deeds that you earn his favor and so re receive a place in heaven. That thought also supplies congregations the explanation for September the 11th, as well as today suicide bombers in the Middle East. For Allah cannot stand those who do not acknowledge him, and so his opponents need to be destroyed. That's specifically Christians, American, and all those in the Middle East who extend some support to America. That pleases Allah, and so earns you a favored place in heaven. If in that process thousands die, that's just the way it is, and that Allah is cold, unmoved, as long as he is acknowledged. There you have, brothers and sisters, two very different concepts of God found in our society today. In that climate, we confess on Lord's Day 7 that to be saved, you must believe in God. But do either of these concepts agree with what the Lord has revealed? What sort of God must you take seriously? That brings us to our second point, the three distant distinct persons are God, are one God. <clears throat> In Lord's Day 8, we repeat after God what he have, what we have heard him say about himself in the Bible. We say this one God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To draw out that three distinct persons, are one true and eternal God. I draw your attention to the passage we read from John 3. The passage tells us of Nicodemus coming to visit Jesus one night. This ruler of the Jews comes with a complaint for the preacher from the Galilean backwoods and says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. That was a nice thing for Nicodemus to say, and no doubt was designed to stroke Jesus the right way. But Jesus wasn't to be sidetracked from his heavenly mission by such compliments, and so he changed the topic to lay before Nicodemus the conditions of salvation. Most assuredly, he said, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And since that sentence went straight over Nicodemus's head, Jesus elaborated in verse 5, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What in 
That's intriguing now, brothers and sisters, is that this last verse is the first of a series of texts in the Gospel of John where three persons of the Godhead are mentioned together in one sentence. Jesus speaks of I, I say to you, this I, of course, is Jesus, the one described earlier in this Gospel as the word who was with God, yes, who is God, and has become flesh, the only begotten of the Father. Jesus speaks of the Spirit, and that's, of course, the Holy Spirit through whose power one must be born again if one wishes to enter the kingdom of God. And there's the third person, God to whom belongs the kingdom, Jesus announces, and that we realize is the Father, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus mentions all three in the same breath when he impresses on Nicodemus the need to be born again. In the verses that follow verse 5, Jesus takes the opportunity to expand for Nicodemus' sake what he said in verse 5. In the process, Jesus also unfolds how the three persons of the Godhead work together to obtain salvation for sinners. He speaks first of the work of the Holy Spirit in verses 6 through 10. The rebirth that's required is not a matter of entering again into mom's womb or being born again as happening in infancy. The rebirth that's required is instead a miracle mysteriously worked by the Holy Spirit. In verse 10, Jesus says that he expected Nicodemus, a teacher in Israel, to know these things. And so it follows that Jesus says about the rebirth and work of the Holy Spirit was already taught in the Old Testament. Amongst the various Old Testament passages behind this text is also Ezekiel 11, where the Lord promises to give his people one heart and a new spirit. He'll take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. Sinners are changed so radically that their change boils down to a rebirth, a total fresh start to one's life. And that's the work of of God, the Holy Spirit. This was material Nicodemus had said in verse 9 that stumped him and his fellow teachers in Jerusalem. How, he asked, can these things be? In his reply, Jesus says in verse 11, We speak what we know and testify to what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. Notice Jesus uses the plural pronoun, we. We speak what we know, and you do not receive our witnesses. Who is Jesus referring to? He explains it in verse 13. No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. In fact, in verse 16, the God, the Father, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. This only begotten Son who came down from heaven is Jesus himself. And on earth he testifies accurately to the things that he has seen in heaven. 
That's why the plural pronoun in verse 11. God the Father speaking through and with God the Son. Jesus' work and the Father's work are in step, are the same. And that's because he and the Father are one. That's why it's so imperative that Nicodemus and the other rulers of the Jews listen to what the messenger sent from God has to say about the kingdom of heaven and what it takes to be saved. Before, the con before we condemn the Jewish leaders for not listening to the messenger God sent, we should ask ourselves whether we are any wiser than they on this point. For in our chapter, Jesus is also teaching us spiritual things, telling us how imperative it is that we are born again. So will we let him teach us the way into God's kingdom? The question is important because Jesus explains on what it takes to be saved. He says the Son of Man whom the Father sent to earth must be lifted up, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. The point of the serpent Moses lifted up was the very every Israelite bitten in the snake plague God sent could look at the serpent and be healed, saved. Jesus must be lifted up, crucified, so that every sinner can look at him, believe in him, and so be forgiven of his sins and saved. What we have here in Jesus' conversation with, with Nicodemus, Jesus' brother and sisters, lays out the way of salvation. Yes, but the way of salvation is extricably interwoven with the reality of the Trinity. The way of salvation, says Jesus, includes that one must be born again. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Delete the Holy Spirit and you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Similarly, the way of salvation, says Jesus, includes the one to be crucified. Jesus, as Israel looked to the serpent on Moses as a staff, believed in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Delete the Son, and you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Once more, the way of salvation, says Jesus, includes that one acknowledge the work of God the Father as the one who speaks through the Son. Indeed, as the one who sent his only Son to earth, delete the Father, and you cannot enter into the kingdom of God because you deny that it was he who opened the door. For you by sending his only dear son to earth in the first place. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three have their own separate contributions to your salvation. Deny any and you have lost salvation itself. That's the burden, Jesus' message to Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. One could, of course, argue that the work of the three persons does not necessarily mean that the three are one God. One could see them as three separate beings who work closely together. Now, there are various texts of Scripture that leave no room for that interpretation, and the footnotes in our Lord's Day list a long row of them. But aside from such texts as that, 
Congregation, consider this thought. If the three persons work separately, even as three friends, what guarantee do you have that each is satisfied with the work of the other and accepts it with no questions asked? We realize if you separate the three as separate beings, all with perfect standards, you have undetermined one source of comfort for the Christians. As it is, any sinner chosen by the Father for life eternal is guaranteed, redeemed by the Son, for the Father and the Son are one. So too, many sinners redeemed by the Son is guaranteed, renewed by the Spirit, for the Son and the Spirit are also one. And the Father most certainly receives those whom the Spirit has renewed. For the Spirit and the Father are one also. These three distinct persons are the one true eternal God, and the three together make way for our salvation. So we're left with our third point, one glorious identity of God. The unity of the three persons has within it a glorious gospel. The Son has been with the Father in the glory of heaven from eternity, not as a stranger to the Father or even as a friend, but says Scripture in the bosom of the Father in John 1 verse 18. This notion of bosom captures the closeness of the Father and Son and echoes the love that is caught in the term only begotten. One son the father has, and this son is so close to the father as to be called his beloved, in whom the father is well pleased. It is, brothers and sisters, this closeness of father and son, that you are one, that makes the gospel of salvation so absolutely glorious. For it is despite the love, the oneness between the father and the son of his bosom, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is so deep was God's love for sinners, so moved was he with compassion on account of the misery into which we had plunged ourselves, that the Father sent his only begotten, dearly beloved Son of his bosom out of his glorious company into the misery of this fallen world. Why? To save sinners from the wrath of God, to reconcile to himself those who broke the covenant God established with mortal man. What God would, that God would send a messenger from heaven to save sinners is one thing. That God would send his only son, true God with father and spirit, away from his own bosom to the anguish of the cross. That beloved points us to nothing else does how compassionate the God of the Bible is. How dearly he loves his people, his chosen to life eternal. It's specifically the doctrine of this Trinity that opens up the, the vistas into this glorious identity of the God of the Bible. That such a God is your God and mine. How delightfully comforting how wondrously glorious. No wonder the Christian learns what love is. But then it's clear too, congregation, that this God is a far cry from the God of the Muslims. 
Sure, the Muslims speak of their God as merciful and gracious, but such terms as mercy and grace do not characterize Allah or Allah's actions. That's because Allah knows not what love is. For Allah was not touched in the pit of his stomach by the misery into which man plunged himself. And God gave no son to pay for sin, nor any Holy Spirit to renew redeemed sinners. So Allah shows no compassion to sinners. Allah wants obedience, simple obedience. That is why the devout Muslim and the true Christians have such radical different behavior. The devout Muslim will kill the infidel regardless of cost of human suffering. He hasn't a clue what love is because his his God knows not what love is. But the devout Christian will give possible even his life to benefit the other. He's tasted the love of God in Jesus Christ and has been renewed through the spirit of this God. And so he loves even his enemy. That in turn is why the Middle East will find no peace without the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the renewal of hearts through the Holy Spirit. Muslims need to learn what the love of God is, a love so wondrously displayed in the Trinity. This God is also such a far cry from the God that the believers of evolution talk about. Their God is not real and therefore does not love. That is why in turn those who believe in this sort of God have difficulty with true love with emptying the self for the benefit of the other. Our society condones abortion, condones abortions and euthanasia, drunkenness and shooting drugs, counseling on empathy, and all that comes from being busy with oneself, about keeping the self happy and prosperous. But love, as triune God displayed in his three persons, work for sinners, Salvation is so very, very different. That is not self-love, but self-emptying for the benefit of the other, unworthy though he be. What the evolutionists need is the gospel of God's love, of how the Father was so moved and compassion for the misery of man that he gave his only begotten Son, and that Son gave up his life to reconcile the unworthy to the Father, and the Spirit seals that love through his renewing work. And from whom, brothers and sisters, will the Muslims and the evolutions, indeed, all of society learn what love really is? This can only be from those who know the identity of God, who have tasted his love for the unworthy, so deep that triune God emptied himself And so these believers reflect that love in the way they treat their neighbor. Reflect that love. That is how the believer shows that he knows the God of heaven and earth, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. This sermon was written by Reverend C. Bauman of Smithville, Ontario.
confession of faith, we will sing from hymn 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. their family with the birth of their healthy boy and the passing of Peter Nienhuis' brother. Shall we call on the Lord? Merciful Lord and Savior, we come to you in prayer. We confess that we are unworthy before you. Our sins testify against us. But you, O Lord, have commanded us to call upon you in all our needs and have 
in mercy promised to listen to our petitions. We realize that this is not because of our merits, but because of the merits of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom you have appointed as our mediator. Heavenly Father, you have showered upon us so many blessings that we are truly unable to comprehend them, much less count them. We especially thank you that you have led us to the light of your truth and to the knowledge of your holy gospel. Time and time again we have forgotten your benefits and deserted you and followed the desires of our own hearts. If you were to bring us to judgment, we could expect nothing but condemnation and eternal death. But we pray, Lord, look upon your face, upon the face of your anointed. Hide your face from our sins. Work in us mightily by your Spirit, that we may daily put to death our sinful nature and work daily in us the renewal of our lives. As it pleases you that we should pray for all mankind, we ask you to bless the spreading of your holy gospel so that it may be proclaimed and received universally, so that the whole world may know you. To this end, send faithful servants into your harvest. Give them the strength to discharge their duties, to fight against all false teaching, so that through your holy name salvation might come to man. We ask that you graciously preserve and govern your Christian churches throughout the world, and in the unity of true faith and all godliness of life. Destroy that kingdom of Satan until the perfection of your kingdom arrive, when you shall be all in all. We bring before you our Christian schools. Bless the good instructions that our covenant children receive in accordance with your holy word. Grant wisdom and energy to our teachers and supporting staff at our schools allowing them to receive the full measure of your love. We pray for our king and his family, for our civil government, for all national, provincial, and local authorities whom you have placed over us. Grant that they all may perform their task in such a manner that the rule of the king of kings is acknowledged by them and then by their subjects. Grant that under the rule of protection, the governing authorities, we may lead a quiet and peaceful life, godly and respectful in every way. Pray for all your children who suffer persecution for the sake of your name, and that the gospel of the Lord Jesus comfort them with your Holy Spirit and deliver them from the hands of their enemies. We remember those in our midst who in their physical illness or spiritual distress may it please you to heal the sick and to restore health. Lift up those who are cast down. Be a comfort to the widowers, a protector to the widows, a father to the orphans. Show your love to the lonely, your strength to the weak, your grace to the dying. At this time we want to remember the Nenheis family, Lord, you have called Peter's brother Bill home to himself, relieving him of his earthly duties, pain and suffering, and the promise of, of your word, be it of great comfort to Peter and to Marion, as well to Carl and Anna and their families. 
We thank you for the comfort of the knowledge of your sustaining power for the bereaved. Glorify yourself in faith, love, and endurance for all those whom you have called to enter your glory in Christ. Lord, take us and our dear ones into your care and keeping. Watch over our families. We thank you once again that we could witness baptism today of little Riley, Shay, Terpstra, and in the near future of baby Joel William Veenstra. We thank you for blessing them with new life and ask that you grant these families all that they may be in need of so that they may raise these children in the fear of your name. We also pray for strengthening of the expectant mothers and grant them a good delivery. Bless the bond of husbands and wives and between parents and children. Help us in our daily work. Protect us when we travel. Bless us all in our respective callings to live according to your will. May we use the talents we have received from your hand in such a way that may not hinder, but rather promote our life and those around us here in Sardis and in your kingdom. In all temptations, strengthen us that we fight the good fight of faith, obtain the victory hereafter with Christ, and inherit eternal life. We come to ask that we may have prayerful consideration for the elections that we hope to have next week. We thank you for the brothers who allow their names to stand. We ask that you would bless our collection, that through our gifts we may support our church families in need. We pray all this in the name of our triune God. Amen. We will now have our offerings for, for the needy in our church, for the ministry of mercy.
this coming week, may the grace and of our triune God, Father and Son and Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Amen.